This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, manners, morals and monsters, the growing trend of Regency fantasy. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm astounded. I got through it. <laughs> I got through it once. <laughs> so, uh, big surprise today. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Jules Reading Things. Yes, um, I finished a book by Olivia Atwater called Half a Soul and it was brilliant. It was an automatic five stars. And I'm quite parsimonious with five star ratings um, just because it are. takes a lot. Because, you know, basically, if you get four stars from me, that means the book was great. The book, you know, it may have been objectively an excellent book. It just didn't have that certain je ne sais quoi, which makes me go, yes, this is one of my favourites forever kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just my personal rating system. So if I go five stars, it's kind of like, oh, this is fantastic. And then usually I shove it at my friends and say, you've got to read this, whether, they, whether they're interested in the subject <laughs> or not. In this case, I just thought, hey, we could do a Dissecting Dragons episode on this particular genre. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's definitely, I think, one that interests us both. So um, I was more than willing when yes. Jules uh, <laughs> pinged it over. Yeah, I did message Madeline. So... Like, we, we could do this. And Madeline was like, uh, and, and then I went, hang on a minute. Was that a bit pushy? Uh, um, if you don't fancy it, just say. <laughs> Not at all. No, it, it, it sounds absolutely great. Um, so, uh, now, what was it about this book that kind of really tickled you? Um, it was the... Um... It, it was the perfect balance between capturing the, the essence of a sort of Regency-style novel and mm-hmm. um, what would, you know, probably the flavour of what we understand as later fairy tales with actual actual fairies in them and managing to work all of that together and not ignoring some of the less pleasant aspects of history that happened around the same time Um, and all of it just Mm. came together with really great and unusual characters who I just sort of you know fell in love with and thought were brilliant which you know I'll explain a bit later but um okay and then I thought actually I've noticed a decided upward trend in a particular subgenre which is historical fantasy set in Regency era England and the corresponding era across Europe, but and by extension of the rest of the world. Um, in reality, with these books, at the moment, we are mostly talking about the UK and France. Yeah, so far yes. at least. Um, and the subgenre is still go- growing, and I keep finding new examples of it. And I wouldn't say I've loved every single one of them, but I've definitely enjoyed most of them, which, you know, for reasons we'll get into. Yeah. So um, let's have a quick history lesson, because I know that's what you're all here for. (laughs) Uh, Now, the Regency era, we think of, oh, the Regency era, it's actually a tiny segment of time in historical terms. Um, Officially, it's less than 10 years long, uh, which is obviously a minuscule amount of time for so many stories to happen in. And I think, to be honest, people kind of play it a bit hard and fast when it comes to the actual dates, they'll just say, oh, it's a Regency drama, and it's not technically Regency. It has but that flavor. regardless. Yeah. Um, so basically, in the late 18... Um, sorry, in late 1810, 
uh, King George III succumbed to mental illness. Um, this is well documented and it was a very interesting period of history. Uh, we obviously don't have a, can't go into a lot of it, um, but the Regency Act of 1811 uh, basically appointed his eldest son, also called George, uh, who, well, he was the Prince of Wales, uh, to the Prince Regent. Um, so he basically took control. Now this was done because George III clearly could not rule, but neither could he um, secede. Now, in addition, the Prince of Wales was not very popular either with the public or, to be honest, much of the aristocracy or parliament. So an interim solution was a way of keeping peace. Essentially, no one wanted a civil war, but no one really wanted George either. <laughs> not even his parents, not even his wife. Nope. nope. <laughs> he apparently was a blissfully unaware of most of that as well, of how, how ridiculous yes. a figure most people thought him. So maybe he was happy. But that whole nursery yeah. rhyme, Georgie Porgy pudding and pie, kiss the girls, made him cry. That's about the Prince Regent. Yes. Um, and by God, he, he did certainly try to kiss a lot of girls. And boys so, as well. And apparently. boys. Um, <laughs> so no need for a deeper dive than that. But officially in British history, the Regency era ran from 1811 to 1820, at which point George III died and the Prince Regent succeeded him as king. And then actually died pretty shortly afterwards. He spent longer as regent than he did as king. Yeah, he did. He was not a man of temperate habits, shall we say. No, um, he, he, I think, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say like he ate himself to death, but like, I don't think he helped himself in that. I think it was pretty close. And if the um, over ex excessive consumption of certain types of, and it was certain types of food that only very rich people could really get their hands on. Um, yes. The overconsumption of that, I really don't think things like the medicine used to treat that and his indigestion and stuff and all the alcohol on top really helped. Yes, I think all of these things probably combined. A very decadent lifestyle um, was not very productive. And also the potential himself. syphilis. Yes. <laughs> like we said, he, he certainly tried to kiss a lot of people. However, uh, for literature purposes and for softer history purposes, the Regency also refers to the time frame uh, between kind of 1795 to uh, the eight, 1837, um, which is still a very short time frame, but it's kind of part of, of what we would call the Georgian, the Georgian period and the Regency kind of slips in between that. Yeah, it's... I mean, if you think about, if you did the, if you considered all of Georgette Hare's novels and all of yeah. the other novels that have come after, Julia Quinn, you know, um, Bridgerton, etc., all, all the rest of them, yeah. and all the imitators out there, and there are hundreds and thousands of them before we even get into fantasy, they're all wedging yeah. these stories in this tiny little 10 to 20 year time frame. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my joke about the whole. Um, about a certain segment of Scottish history and the fact that that period of history is just jam-packed with time-travelling Americans. Because... Yeah, just just, just every... <laughs> you can't move for how many time-travelling Americans <laughs> there are. <laughs> yes. So, basically, why is this such a popular setting for books? And I'd like to point out, this is not a complaint. I love reading books set in the Regency era. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, in two words, Jane Austen. Yes. Um, but this is the era she wrote in, and we've got an entire episode on Jane Austen, so I don't have to get sidetracked here. <laughs> you can go and check out our, our episode on Jane Austen. Um, yeah. 
But it's difficult to underestimate how influential she was in terms of literature as a whole. Um, in fan mm-hmm. terms, there are those who love her books and so are looking for more of the same, i.e. me. Um, mm-hmm. There are people who have never read her books and find her writing quite difficult to access because, you know, 200 years or so stands between us and her in terms of prose. Yeah. So her her books would have been incredibly accessible at the time, but maybe not so much to people now. And no slur on anyone if they do find it difficult. But they love mm-hmm. the BBC and other adaptations and they want more of the same and they want it in literature yeah. form. Fine. Yeah. Um, and there are people who have only the vaguest idea of who she was, who unknowingly love all of the tropes which derive from her work in the books and films that they read now. Yes. Um, so, huge fan base. Um, some not even aware that they're part of the fan base. But basically, if you pick up a Regency setting, you're picking something which already has, is already part of this huge fan base. Yeah, which is a tremendous exa- um a tremendous advantage sorry tremendous advantage if you want to write something set in that era and you want to give it a fantasy twist or even a horror twist let's not forget pride mm-hmm. and prejudice and zombies um yep. and you know you've got a pre-made fan base there so you know that's a huge a huge ex- um advantage why do i keep trying to say example instead of advantage i don't it's I not no it's idea. not good okay um ignoring my <laughs> impending senility the, and another thing to consider, we've talked about our buttery goodness episodes. Um, this is mm. all butter because this absolutely taps into the upside down other world alternate world theme where yeah. things are say, similar enough to be accessible, but so different. It's like taking a holiday in another time or another place. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many things that go into it. You know, morals, manners, constraints, marriages, money, society... It's one of those things where you're like, wow, I would not want to live here. But at the same time, <laughs> it's like the things it's it's so ironic to me that the things that Jane Austen was talking about in her books carefully behind her fan, as it were, because she had to be very careful not to be seen to cri- be openly criticising the government or the church or she could have been imprisoned. So the things yeah. she's pointing out, like serial pregnancies will kill you young. So make sure that either A, you want to die for the man you marry or be you um, are taking precautions something that could not be discussed openly um yeah because the church didn't approve obviously and things like slavery and things like the enclosure act things like that all those things which informed society and the manners and the, the social dance of etiquette and things all those things which were actually constraints that she was kind of like pushing against <laughs> are all the things that people are kind of like I want more of that I want to just go and live in that time for a while and not have to worry about (laughs) you know things now like um having to discuss my previous sexual history with my new partner (laughs) it won't be an issue because it won't be until we're married before we can even think about things like that you know yeah (laughs) okay a bit of an extreme example but it is the holiday in the past type thing isn't it yeah absolutely um and I think it's also it the thing I always love is that you, you kind of really get into it when you're watching or reading anything Regency where something happens that now would just be sort of like, whatever. Um, and But then you're like, oh, how scandalous! My God, they were in a room alone together! That whore! And now, and they say they don't love each other, but now they must get married, otherwise she'll be ruined kind of thing. Yeah. Which, you know, is taking it to an extreme example because I'm sure there are examples of 
of women caught in minor indiscretions like that as in oh god i didn't realize he was already in the library yeah i know there's parts in pride and prejudice where lizzie happens to go into a room where darcy is already there and yeah. she'll either excuse herself or he'll say something to her so she is forced to reply out of politeness um but they she definitely doesn't get married to him because of that so yeah absolutely and you know i think that there there are several you know depending factors for example if you're you know in someone's house anyway you would expect um... to eventually <laughs> run into them in one of the rooms yeah. wouldn't you? i mean if she'd gone barging into his bedroom that might have been a different matter that that would completely if, and more importantly if he'd gone barging into hers um <laughs> yes that could have all anyway. gone very differently very very differently <laughs> um finally obviously the world building is just it's relatively easy um although please do do some research because genuine regency fan is going to get super pissed off if you screw up something which is relatively basic now it does depend on kind of how historical you're trying to be so for example if you're doing something which is just has all the beats but none of the actual history like uh, Bridgerton um, even then there are still people who are like what and I think they get away with it by really leaning into it you know particularly the TV show with the costumes and stuff like that they super lean into it um, in saying this is just a fantasy it's not really history um, and that's why people don't get too annoyed with it but if you are writing something which is Regency it's obviously worth it's worth researching definitely okay so what is Regency fantasy and what do you need to consider? So the clue is a tiny bit in the title. It's basically an Austen-esque or Radcliffe-esque, Shirley-esque, etc. Uh, sorry, Shirley? <laughs> yes, Shirley. <laughs> Shirley, that little known writer. Yes, yes that little known writer, Shirley. Shelley, sorry. <laughs> And I was the thing is even as I read Shelley, I was even as I said Shirley, I was thinking Shelley. So I don't know <laughs> that Shirley Bassey period. Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry, Shelley-esque setting and story, uh, but with fantasy or horror elements, which make up an important part of the story. Yeah, and I think I can't stress that bit enough for me. The ones that I've really loved that I've read so far, and I intend to read more. I have got a TBR of, of this sort of stuff alone that I could read. The ones mm. that really work for me are the ones that have done enough research that they know where to slot the fantasy in for best effect. And obviously we'll talk about some examples later. Um, yeah. But it's very clearly rooted. You get a sense of place. It's the whole fairy bones thing. As in, you can do what you want with fantasy as long as you hitch it to a decent skeleton that people can relate to. That kind of came yeah, out wrong. absolutely. But... No, no, no. I, I feel like you got it. You... <laughs> Sorry, I was about to say, you got it in the nut. Um, and I don't think that's what the saying is. We don't talk about that in public, Madeline. That's a private story. <laughs> Sometimes I really am French and it's moments where I'm like, what are English sayings? I don't know. Let's mix and match. See what happens. Um, now, the the manners, morals and social standings are obviously very important elements um, in Regency fantasy. Um, so if you want Regency fantasy to work, you need to convey a strong sense of the time period. People want to feel that it's actually a historical time period yeah definitely um i i don't know if 
any of our listeners, or indeed Madeline, has actually watched Lost in Austin, but they kind of did a pitch-perfect rendering of what would happen if someone basically got outlanded back to Pride and Prejudice, but actual Pride and Prejudice, um, with all the things that you don't get told in Jane Austen's books, because Jane Austen didn't need to explain it, because she was writing about now. It'd be like someone explaining what a mobile phone is. Yeah. Now in a book, when you you just say no, my mobile phone, everyone knows what it is, so you wouldn't explain it. But in two hundred years' yeah. time, people would be like, "What? What are they talking about? Don't they have <laughs> telepathic communicators inserted in the skulls?" <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> that might not be coming, just as an example. <laughs> I don't know. Since Jules is also a time traveler, I believe anything she says. Um... <laughs> Um, I've not actually seen Lost in Austin, but that sounds really interesting. Oh, it's fantastic! It's it's there are parts of it where you go ah, and then you think actually someone from the twenty tens probably would act like that, even if they were a massive Jane Austen fan, um, just because yeah. you wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't. I, to be honest, if a dish of larks turned up in front of me and I'd managed perfect manners on everything else, I probably still wouldn't eat the dish of larks even though it's the height of bad manners not to, and then to progress on to the next course. You know, I wouldn't necessarily know that thing. Yeah. Obviously, I've just demonstrated (laughs) I did, but I learnt it through watching Lost in Austin. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so, on the other hand, the fantasy elements also need to be essential to the story. I mean, if they're not, why would you be writing them? Uh, Maybe you just want to write historical fiction, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, I have difficulty keeping fantasy elements out of my historical fiction. Yeah, even when it's just meant to be historical fiction, a dragon shows up. You know, maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I've written a short story of of Regency fantasy. Maybe I should just write in that and, you know, scratch that itch. Um, (laughs) But seriously, there's no point saying, oh, I want to write a thing where there are dragons and people wear Regency costume um, because you're going to have to do a massive amount of world building and if you add enough Regency elements but without the Regency setting people are going to be confused because you're telling them one thing and and doing something completely different. Yeah. Um, You need to consider what was happening at the time especially if your story is literally set in England or France. So, for example, this was during the Napoleonic Wars. So while French culture was prized and aped at court, the French themselves were not particularly trusted in England and vice versa. Yes, it it was a weird time, a weird time of contradictions whereby we did. We looked to Paris for culture, for dress, certainly the ton and the courts did. Um, Mm. And yet, you know, French literature was also prized. And yet, at the same time, the French themselves were kind of like, oh, you can't trust them. And there was this this sort of Reds Under the Bed style paranoia about whether the French were infiltrating people in Cornwall. And it's like if you yeah. had a French person talk and a person from an actual rural Cornwall, uh, Cornish person <laughs> talk, I don't see how you could actually confuse the two. But this was a genuine fear. <laughs> Um, Now, if you were educated, obviously, uh, you spoke fluent French during this period, but you were very clear about being a British subject. Yeah. Now, this was 
also the time of the Enclosure Act, the abolishing of slavery in England at least. Obviously it's a complicated subject, so we're not going to go into that here. Um, but also this period of smuggling, because again, Napoleonic War. Wars are expensive. Uh, taxes got introduced. It's also around this period that we start to actually, because again of the war and all that jazz, we start to get um, paper money. I believe. Yes, I during this I think we had some in the late 16th century but it began to catch on more, you know, promissory notes and things which were essentially Yeah. Yeah. Um and what's interesting is that during this period there were certain taxes which were applied which was which were literally just we're putting these taxes in place for the war and that's it and they've never gone. Yes. And we've still got them. Since. Now. We've still got them. Yes. So whenever you basically whenever <laughs> you buy I mean, whenever you go and buy a bottle of whiskey or whatever you're paying extra duty on top of that and that duty is the tax to pay for the napoleonic war which you know apparently is going to something else now because um, last time i checked <laughs> one, we, one assumes <laughs> we're not at war with france at the moment um i think we finally might have got that out of our systems touch wood <laughs> unless there's some sort of napoleonic war happening in the sky with ghost napoleon which honestly that sounds like a great story so yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, and it's. I think this was a time when you really got some of the more entrenched, entrenched attitudes towards classism, which the Victorians then gleefully built on. But we can't blame all yeah. of it on the Victorians. It absolutely, it didn't begin here. We've we've had it. Obviously, we had the the idea of the noble being noble by birth and chosen by God, kind of thing, which kind mm. of after the Peasants' Revolt didn't get overturned but got a serious overhaul and in a way that it didn't in the rest of Europe. Um, and yet, even though you could still, by your own own efforts, you could climb pretty high once they got rid of villainage. Um, you needed a bit of luck as well and you needed to have good mm. general capacity. Um, but you could, in theory, climb quite high and then your children could climb higher still, etc., etc. Um, this is when we started... I wouldn't say getting the nouveau riche, but we started getting the middle class, the merchant class. Uh, some of them became mayors, etc. Um, the 1700s, uh, the late 1700s and the Napoleonic Wars, because you had the Enclosure Act, which took land basically away from poor people so they couldn't mm. common, they couldn't graze their animals or grow crops and things there for their own usage. So they were hungry. And then you added duty on things um, like you know tobacco sugar some bits some stuff that basically people had been told they absolutely needed so they changed their way of life to incorporate those things and then suddenly yeah. they had to pay all this extra money on top which is why you got this big smuggling culture but the the divide in terms of rich and poor became really quite apparent then and lots of middle in the middle families were kind of ruined one way or the other and others yeah, got absolutely. disgustingly rich yes yeah um Banking, obviously, also really took off. I mean, it was already a thing, but it really took off, I think, during this period. And, and let it be known that there were people protesting in the ways that they were able to protest. Uh, this was a time when we did not have any sort of freedom of speech. If they didn't like what you were saying, they could lock you up without a trial and just keep you. Yeah. It is important to obviously recognise that, in addition, the mindset of the general populace was not going to be the same as that of the ton, nope. as it were. No, uh, I think that's always kind of struck... I, I think they tried to address this with the last season of Bridgerton. 
the fact that, you know, the, the intelligent working and middle class were not the same as the Tom. They were not just interested in this season's scandal. It was not a bunch of frivolous, young and beautiful people in, in gorgeous clothing who were arguing about who was going to get married. Uh, there was also all yeah. this other stuff going on underneath. So yeah. um, you don't have to include the entire history of the time. And we certainly haven't given you the entire history of the time because there's so much more that was going on. Um, yeah. I mean, France was kind of between revolutions, but, you know, they were still happening. <laughs> yeah. There's some pretty epic stuff going on over there, too. Yeah. Um, and it will depend on whether you're writing a light, cosy fantasy, a fantasy romance, like Bridgerton, obviously, or a gritty historical mm. fantasy as to how much you want to include. Yes. Um, and because there was actually so much happening during that time, you also need to think about actually, if you're going for those sort of 20 years, at what point in those 20 years you're kind of placing your story. Because historically, it's a very, very interesting period. And in short periods of time, there were some revolutionary things that were coming to light. Um, one of which, obviously, is the fact that people suddenly had to start rethinking, and I say this inverted commas, madness, mental illness and things like that, as not being some kind of punishment or, or some kind of, uh, you know, um, something that one deserves or, or, or even supernatural, because suddenly they couldn't pretend like that was the case anymore because the king had it. Yes. Um, there are other things to consider as well. For example... We kind of inherit a lot of, I think people sort of look as far back as uh, the Victorian era and they don't really necessarily look further back. But the Georgians were bawdy. They would talk about mm. sex. It wasn't like a verboten topic. I mean, OK, you might not bring up um, the length of a, a man's wit, as it were, um, <laughs> if you were hoping to marry him. Um, but amongst brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and things you know people would talk about things like this um the way children were raised was different so because families tended to be very you know certainly middle class families where you know you'd have parents sharing a bedroom um they tended to have quite a lot of children one after the other unless they took measures to prevent it and yes there was such a thing as contraception yes there were abortifacients in pill form so you could end a pregnancy and nobody would say anything to you about it because up until about five months when the child started to move that wasn't anyone's business except yours um, it's just that this that information wasn't necessarily publicized so if you were yeah. a young girl who'd been very sheltered and your mother hadn't seen fit to tell you these things um, that might be an issue but to, to assume that you were just kind of property under the law in the same way, it wasn't quite as clear-cut as that. Some of that became more mm. entrenched during the Victorian era. So I think it's kind of worth noting these things. And the fact that women could be relatively outspoken, it's just that you might not then be considered a desirable wife. Yeah. So it's it's definitely worth considering kind of the period and the placement of your characters also, which part of society they were in, uh, and not just which part of you know society, which part of society they were in, and what and where this was, because you're going to have a very different situation for you know a middle class family in rural Cornwall to a middle class family in 
Dublin or London or something like that you know different situations different kind of things different social interactions etc so it's definitely worth considering as well and when you're incorporating some kind of history use it as a backdrop it's an incredibly important part of history there's a reason you're being drawn to that period so you can definitely use it to emphasize some of your themes and ideas yes um, the the final thing I would say on the history front, and I promise I will stop because I know once I get talking about history, I'm quite difficult to head off, like a charging <laughs> bull. Stop, stop it. Doesn't it. matter what you wave in my face, I'm, I'm still coming. Um, yeah, so the final thing I would say is that you have to bear in mind that, yes, we have all these wonderful Regency romances and things, and some of them are silly and some of them are kind of fun and some of them are very intelligent. Um quite frankly marriage was a career path for young ladies Mm. the only other real career path you had as a young lady was and by lady i mean a member of the gentry was or the aristocracy the the only other thing you could do if you didn't have a large dowry and you weren't going to be able to keep yourself you could not respectably go and get a job and earn money so the only things you could do were marry become a governess which you know was not the best thing an awful lot of governesses were very badly treated in that era in the early victorian era or you could Mm. be a lady's companion again you're subject to whatever kicks and whims came your way so yes marriage looked like the good option because at least you would be mistress of your own home and valuable you know for producing children and having a household so while people sort of sneer at the idea of uh, women just being obsessed with marriage well yes you're 16 eventually your parents are not going to be able to keep you anymore if they live that long and you need something that isn't prostitution because that's how far you can fall uh, to ensure you have a future so again it it is something to think about yeah absolutely it isn't all just whims and silliness so let's look at some examples of regency fantasy yes well Obviously, one of my absolute favourites is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke. Yes. Um, it's a classic. It really is. I mean, it's it's one hell of a tome, over a thousand pages long, and the footnotes are stories in themselves, and I just love every second of it. It's, it's amazing. And it's so... I think it's because the world building is so amazing that she manages to slot this idea of magicians and English magicians and fairies and things in there with their own etiquette and morals and morals just effortlessly. I'm sure it wasn't effortless, but it looks effortless. Mm. Yeah. And I think the thing that really works is that it all fits. Yeah. It does all fit. And it feels, um, interestingly enough, it, it... pulls actually again at some of those themes that were starting to appear during that period of and that obviously were then hugely accentuated during the Victorian period of national crisis and national identity in terms of the looking into the past also in terms of how folklore and how these things had been turned into academic subjects and you have that separation between the class, you know, between classes and stuff like that. Yeah, I absolutely love that because you start off with um, basically this <laughs> this group of people who who call themselves the the magicians of England, I believe, and they yeah. are, as Madeline says, an academic group. They meet up, and then one of their younger members 
makes the great faux pas of suggesting they try actual magic. And all the yeah. others just look at him scandalised and he gets thrown out. <laughs> yeah. Um, just for <laughs> suggesting, it's like, my dear boy, you don't practice magic. Um, it it all comes about because I think he, so he's he's kind of determined to prove that actual magic is a real thing. It hasn't all left England, that there is more to it. Um, mm. And I think we get the first mention of the Raven King and the coming, the return of magic at that point. He goes, he hears about Mr. Norrell, who is basically this recluse who buys all the occult books because he doesn't want anyone to have them. He's kind of a, a, a miser with the idea of magic, real magic. Yeah. But he is tolerably skilled. Um, and they're trying to persuade him to come forward so that they can say, look, there is a real magician. Real people can learn magic kind of thing. And it, it sort of sets off this revolution, which mirrors sort of the educational revolutions that were happening at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Incredibly well done. And obviously she doesn't skip over Napoleonic Wars. Suddenly you're considering what happens if you've got magic, you've got a magician at your disposal, and you send him off to the front. Yes. Um, and there are some very disturbing things that happen. Yes. Uh, also you know from the tv series which is just a windmill full of zombies yes <laughs> it is basically as if you know if jane austen had been born a couple of centuries later and they said we want you to sit down and write a fantasy novel any length you like oh by the way here's this modern thing called a laptop you don't have to write it by hand um and and then said off you go it's kind of like that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it makes some really intelligent points about various other things as well. I like. I think what I like about the fact is when it comes time for it to, to, to discuss things like slavery or the Napoleonic Wars mm. or the Enclosure Act, it doesn't shy away. It's kind of like this happened because of this, and it's told with in that third person omniscient narrator type style, which Jane Austen invented, yeah. and it, you you do get this that the this overlay of wit with it so even when horrible things are happening you can't help finding some of it a bit ridiculous you're doing the yeah. elizabeth bennett thing of laughing at the world's follies even as you're wincing at what's going on yeah i love it okay uh next is the De declaration of the rights of magicians yeah this is hg parry um i think it's fair to say that she was actually highly influenced by Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Bear in mind, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell came out in the, I want to say the early 2000s, but it might have been the late 90s even. You know, it's a hefty, hefty tome that's been out for a while. Um, the Declaration has came out sort of a year or two ago, and it's, there's all, you know, magicians are licensed and certain magicians have to wear cuffs, as in cuffs of metal, that stop them practicing magic because they're considered too dangerous to be able to practice. And this parallels the abolition of the slave trade that was happening at the same time. So you've got William Wilberforce and um, Pitt the Elder, Pitt the Younger, Pitt the Younger, sorry, um, working on the, the abolitionist charter. And all mm. that's happening as well. Um, it's quite horrible how because it, you, it's set in England it's also set in France there's a revolution going on and you have Robespierre there as well yeah Robespierre Robespierre 
Uh, I don't know. I just say Robespierre because everyone else understands what I say when I say that. That's fair enough. <laughs> um, you're also out to Saint-Domingue where you have obviously one of the most infamous colonies where they, you know, they revolted quite rightly and took the island back. Um, later it was then recaptured by the French, uh, but I don't think it was ever held really securely again. And it talks mm. about uh, the actual, I mean, one of the character, one, one of the POVs is actually a slave who is has some natural magic herself. But they collar yeah. and drug the slaves so that the slaves cannot access their own magic. And they're kind of prisoners in their own minds, except at night, which is even more horrific. Because if you're enslaved, at least you can say you're free in your own mind. Except that this isn't yeah. the case if they've got any sort of magic. Um, so there is, that's kind of how they build the sympathy by saying, you know what, magicians should be trusted with what they've got or dealt with. If they cannot, they've proven they cannot be trusted. We should not be preemptively distrusting them. Yeah. And at the same time, well, the slaves are even worse off and we need to do something about this because this is an appalling way to treat someone. They they yeah. are people as well. They are our equals. Um, I think it kind of comes off, but I have to say, Parry has put in a few things that I know to be factually inaccurate and I think she's put them in because these are populist things people say about the time period. Um, and I don't know if she's done it deliberately because she doesn't want people who really hate some of these things being mentioned to come after her which you know okay I can understand that or whether she's done it because she genuinely didn't look any further and this isn't a big black mark against her it's just it, it made me go hang on a second you're you're actually writing quite a hefty gritty historical fantasy here and yet you've done that and I don't think you did it deliberately as in you, you didn't change it for effect that's just there because you think that's what should be there so what are some of the things? I'm kind of curious now. Uh, things like they had the uh, they had white Europeans actually going into Africa, the body of Africa itself, to kidnap um, black slaves, which didn't happen until late. It, it just didn't really happen because the life expectancy of a white European in Africa was less than a year, so they just didn't do that. The Portuguese did. Yeah, but if you happen to be sort of English or whatever, then you, your chances of surviving weren't weren't great. It, it kind of skipped over the whole things like the Tanganyikans selling everyone who weren't Tanganyikan to the white European settlers and things. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, not just the Tanganyikans; there were various others. So yeah, um, I didn't find it as enjoyable as Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, and it was very difficult not to compare the two books. But it is interesting and it is quite well done and if you want something that isn't sort of funny about the horrible things you might enjoy it okay all right um okay so next on our list um is the glamorous histories uh which is mary uh robinette uh kowal i think it's kowal but i honestly i've never heard her name say said out loud um i actually to read one of her recent books and um she's cool she's she's a great person she is a she's a puppeteer as well as a writer which i know may not be welcome news to madeline <laughs> and she i've just felt my my haunches go up there she, she's also an audiobook narrator so she you know she's got irons in many fires um the glamorous histories is quite a light fantasy series which is kind of georgette hayer with magic so right. you have young women trying to make 
valuable marriage matches and one of the things that can make you a valuable uh, potential wife uh, is the ability to improve your future home with magic so it's almost like a sort of um, changing rooms sort of dec decorating type gift where you can add you know if you've got innate taste and this magical ability you can change the wallpaper by touching it kind of thing yeah um, but they're a lot of fun and you know she again does deal with some serious stuff as well is that where the the whole glamorist part of the title comes in yes then? yeah i believe they are i mean i haven't read the whole series in fairness i've only read i think the first two and it was a little while ago but i it's struck me because it was sort of low-key magic but there was definitely magic in with with everything else um mm. now i obviously i'm a fan of naomi novak um mm -hmm. and i think madeline is too yes um, most certainly her early books uh included included the his majesty's dragon series and the first book is called temeraire and it is set around the napoleonic wars except that the french have dragons <laughs> Yep, stands to reason. Totally plausible. Got it. Um, <laughs> the dragons are quite difficult to get hold of. The eggs are quite difficult to get hold of. Um, and it, it starts off with a sea captain who is obviously up against these... <laughs> the French basically have an aerial division, so they're riding in on dragon back. And our poor little navy is not doing terribly well against that. But he manages to take out uh, one dragon rider. And the dragon is injured on the beach. And instead of having it killed, he kind of argues for it to be spared because the dragon hasn't been given any choice in the matter yeah. he accidentally bonds with the dragon and he tries to send the dragon away and the dragon just stops eating because it's bonded with him and Aww. so he has to leave the sea he has to leave his ship and he becomes a dragon rider the first uh dragon rider that the english actually have and it starts to turn the tide of the napoleonic war and there's, I think, six or seven books in the series, and it looks at different bits that are happening throughout history there. Um, goes all over the world. I think they go to China, and they go, I think, in the final book, which I have not read, I think they probably end up in America. But mm -hmm. it's really interesting, and it's just what ke what keeps me invested is this relationship between the main character and Temeraire the dragon. Aww. It's so cute. I love that. Um, speaking of dragons, we then have A Natural History of Dragons, yep. um, which we have spoken about in a past episode. Uh, I really liked it because, and I, th I really liked it as well because it, it starts to highlight this conservation and this interest in the natural world that started to manifest in that, I say started to manifest, but really kind of, uh, really kind of took off during that period. Um, and would sort of feed into a lot of things later in the Victorian period. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's it's the time that fossils were being discovered. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, and, you know, people were studying things like insects and stuff. And um, there was a lot of exploration in, into the jungles and things. Again, that your life expectancy was not great if you were heading anywhere that you, you as a European, that you had no right to be, really. <laughs> Yeah, they a lot of people died. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, mosquito bites and snakes and 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 also, you know, also just the heat. They just couldn't cope yeah. with it. Um <laughs> but A Natural History of Dragons is a great book and it's got this great main character. I mean, I loved the first book so much. I went and immediately read all the other books in the series. Um I like the main character. I really like the way that she presented 
the the first the romance in the first book as this transactional thing that grew into into love i think madeline said the same thing before yeah and yeah it's not romance as such but in somehow it was much more satisfying because what they had grew out of friendship and the fact that they were both fascinated by dragons yeah absolutely i just thought it was a really it's and it it really kind of pulls into that regency sort of you know themes and stuff like that that i just thought really really worked yeah i mean i can tell that it was a a series that definitely had an effect on me because i'm talking about it now thinking you know in a year or so i'd be up for reading all of those again and i don't (laughs) reread books unless they've got that but if they have got that i'm kind of like i feel a bit homesick for that book and i'd like to go back there (laughs) uh we then have scales and sensibility now, I have to admit, I have not read all of this book yet, and I absolutely intend to because I love what I've read so far. But it is kind of a... It, you know, dragons are really popular. Have you noticed? Magicians and dragons, the, the, things, that yeah. go, the things that go into this. Um, but, yeah, this is a very sweet, slightly romantic um, Jane Austen-esque story uh, whereby the disenfranchised young woman who is a lady but you know just isn't doesn't have an awful lot of money so she is the poor relation um compared to her spoiled older cousin who has all the latest things including a a a pygmy dragon which they're bred to be a particular size and to perch on the lady's shoulder or on her wrist and she's not very nice to this dragon she doesn't you know Mm. she doesn't spend time training imagine having a cat that you train to sit on your shoulder and of course, the poor cat's yeah. really stressed out, so it's kind of voiding its bowels and whatever. The dragon's doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, but she's quite mean to it. She doesn't really look after it. So the the poor relation and this dragon just sort of form a little bond. And it goes on from there. It's one of those, again, Cinderella-type things, whereby someone's innate worth is seen, despite the fact that they don't have riches or connections or, you know, a powerful family. Yeah, it's really sweet, and everyone I've spoken to who's actually managed to get through the whole book, I just haven't had time. Um, but everyone who's actually <laughs> managed to get through the whole book has gone has said, "Oh my god, I love it so much! Why isn't there a book two already?" <laughs> I love that. So I'm probably going to be the same. Um, and then finally, we have Half a Soul by Olivia Atwater. Yes, um, I started this. And halfway through the book, I went and bought all the author's other books. So that should tell you <laughs> um, what I thought of the book. Uh, basically, I'm going to give a bit more detail on this one because I think Madeline especially, but some of our listeners will appreciate how this was done. This is an author, Olivia Atwater, who started out with her books indie published. And now I think they've been picked up by a fantasy publisher. And they're being reissued with audiobooks accompanying them as well. Um, The main character, Theodora, or Dora, when she's a little 10-year-old girl, she runs away from her lessons and her cousin, who's just slightly younger than she is, and runs out sort of because she wants to go climbing trees in the forest, which isn't obviously very ladylike. She runs into a fairy lord and he asks her some impertinent questions and she's rude to him. Uh, because she's a very direct person and she doesn't really know any better she's only 10 and then he turns around and says well your mother made a deal with me so I am going to take your soul 
and he's halfway through doing this horrible thing to her to take her you know just basically pulling her soul away when her cousin Vanessa turns up and stabs him with a pair of iron scissors um, in the leg she doesn't kill him or anything um, he retreats because fairies and iron don't get on terribly well yeah. but Theodora is left with only half a soul so one of her eyes is a disconcerting colourless shade mm-hmm. um, and she always feels very distant from her emotions after that she's always very calm she's always very patient uh, nothing she never reacts to things how people feel she should react she's just basically it's one of the most perfect metaphors for how some people react to a traumatic event as in being a bit divorced from their emotions to the point where they think yeah I might actually be irreparably damaged and they can't even feel upset about that because those emotions are so far away. Yeah. Anyway, time moves on and both girls are now 20 and it's time for Vanessa, who is a lovely, sweet girl, just a tiny bit thoughtless. She ought to be out in society and they have, you know, they never bothered to make, you know bring Dora out in society because they looked at her and said you look too odd you're too strange you're too direct in what you say and you have no concept you have no filter basically yeah Um, no one's ever going to marry you which doesn't offend Dora it just sort of sits at the back of her mind and she just sort of says okay yeah I guess no one will ever marry me kind of thing Um, and Vanessa is basically wrangling this coming out for herself and insists Dora goes with her and it later transpires that what Vanessa is trying to do is get hold of the Lord Saucier, the uh, premier magician of England, to get him to cure Dora. Um, but Dora meets him by mistake, and all all these other things happen. And he's incredibly rude to her, but Dora's just kind of like, it's water off a duck's back because she's so divorced from her emotions. <laughs> And he's, he can't help being intrigued by this. And he's been in the Napoleonic War with a, another young man who you meet, who is absolutely lovely. He's so adorable. I, I was listening to, or rather I was reading his part and I was just like, Madeline would love him. That's, he's Madeline Candy. I can see this. <laughs> Does he ever in her? Uh, I don't think so. But, you uh. know, I don't think they mention his hair, so you can imagine it. <laughs> you can imagine it however you like. So it's- it's always the red-headed's companion. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, he'd lost an arm in the war. He's a doctor. The magicians made him a silver-handed stuff. There's there's all sorts of stuff in there that's really um, quite cool. And there's a lot of stuff about the class divide, the workhouses, that where the poor are going. Now they're being driven there by the Enclosure Act. And the fact that this yeah. war is happening, it's expensive and it's awful. And the Lord Saucier, um, Elias and Dora, you know, kind of come to really appreciate each other despite that inauspicious pride and prejudice style beginning nice (laughs) and it just goes on from there Uh, i don't want to spoil it for anybody but it is such an amazingly good book and i really just love this depiction of this heroine who's had this traumatic thing happen to her as a child and has become sort of a bit different because of it and it's not her fault but she can't pretend to be anything except what she is because she's only got half a soul. It was yeah. just such a great metaphor. That is really, really interesting. I love that concept. So I highly recommend it. Might... And it's a great audio book okay. too. <laughs> 
That's what I'd like to hear. Okay. <laughs> Another one for the to-be-read yes. list. I'm a dreadful person to be around if you want your TBR pile to get smaller because I just keep it, saying. Yeah, it'll never get smaller. But she's um... Unless you read as quickly as Jules, it will never get smaller. My TBR pile does not get smaller. I no. think they breed when I'm not looking. Um, I've got... Uh, sorry, at, Olivia Atwater has written three other books. Two of them are set in the same world with different characters, so I'm desperate to get onto those. Um, I'm very, very keen. And another one is about an angel and a demon, sort of, uh, which, I again, I haven't read, but I reckon that I'm going to really love that, so that might be a future recommendation. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, on that note, uh, we have come to the end of our episode. A lot of really good recommendations there, um, but we do have one more for you because <laughs> it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, and Jules, I believe that you have got another one to, uh, for us to add to our growing pile. Well, actually, that last one, Half a Soul, is my recommendation. So oh, okay. I've, I've just right. talked about it at, um, yeah. at length, so I won't do it again. I could do <laughs> I enjoyed it that much. That's, that's always a good, you know, it's like, a, but I could talk I about could it talk more. I could talk about it more. <laughs> so now I'm just going to well, be desperate for Madeline to, to, to read it so that we can just go ee together. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely add it then. In fact, I will get it. I will get the audiobook right now. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you guys next yeah, week. Yeah, thanks. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.